Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Al Flapsley with you still debating the Jews on who he was. As Jonathan said, we'll be finishing up chapter 10 today. Look at verse 27 with me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I learned this week that domestic sheep and sheep in the wild behave very differently while grazing. Wild sheep remain ever vigilant against predators, and they chew with their heads constantly up, scanning their surroundings for any sign of danger. In contrast, domestic sheep graze with their heads down, popping up only when a noise draws their attention. When sheep have a good shepherd, they feel secure and they don't live in constant fear. And in the same way, believers can rest in confidence that Christ has done everything to secure their eternal safety for them. There is a commercial with Allstate Insurance that you are in good hands with them. Christians have it way better. Not only are we in good hands, we are in God's hands. We are told that in verse 28 that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Now, unfortunately, this verse has been terribly abused. I even heard a TV preacher say last week something to this effect. He said, so if you know someone who accepted Christ and yet your lives didn't change one bit, and they died, am I still saying they're going to heaven? The, pe- the preacher then paused for dramatic effect and then said, that is exactly what I'm telling you. Why? Because Jesus said that no one could snatch them out of his hand. But is that a valid interpretation? What about verse 27? Once again, this is where context is so important. Who will not be snatched out of his hand? He gives us three different conditions. One, we hear his voice. Two, he knows us in a covenant relationship. And three, we follow him. And in the Bible, when you follow someone, you emulate their lives and you obey their commands. In short, if we are saved, our lives should reflect that in a myriad of different ways. But here's where I want us to be careful. There are some Christians with very tender spirits who live in doubt of their salvation because they fall into sin from time to time. Now, it is my theological belief that if you have been truly converted, you are eternally secure. Then why do Christians sometimes doubt that? Well, Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. What does that mean? God always loves us, but just like you can stand outside and use an umbrella to keep the sun away from you, you can also put an umbrella of sin and unbelief that keeps you from fully experiencing the love of God. But it's like when your five-year-old is standing before you with their face covered in chocolate cake, loudly protesting their innocence. They are still your child, although until they repent of their wrongdoing, they have set up a barrier in that relationship. And really, I believe that if eternal life is life that can never be lost, otherwise, 
it is not really eternal life. What I mean is, if it could be lost after a few years, or even after many years, then it would not be eternal. Nevertheless, Jesus knew that there would be many there who would find this difficult to accept and who would ex attempt to explain it away. By saying perhaps that eternal life is a quality of life rather than a life of unending duration. But I don't think scripture really gives us that option. If you are truly regenerated, I believe you are eternally secured. Now, that is a fact, as Jonathan was saying. That's not a feeling. Regardless of how insensitive, how occasionally disobedient, or how fearful sheep choose to be, their place in the flock is secure. As I mentioned earlier, this is not to suggest that the believer's behavior is irrelevant or unimportant. People who willfully resist spiritual growth and who give no evidence in their values or behavior need to seriously question their spiritual condition. However, eternal security like salvation itself is not based on the goodness of the believer. We are just as incapable, incapable as holding on to salvation as we were of obtaining it in the first place. That means we are no longer controlled by our old sinful nature, but that does not mean that we never sin. The story has been told of B.E. Westcott, a New Testament scholar of great distinction, who for some years was a professor of divinity at Cambridge University and became the Bishop of Durham in 1890. It is said that while traveling somewhere by bus, he was accosted by a Salvation Army worker, and she asked him if he had been saved. With a twinkle in his eye, the bishop replied, Well, my dear, it depends on what you mean. He then went on to explain to her, he said, you see, there are three senses or tenses of salvation. They go like this. First, I have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin by a crucified Savior. Secondly, I am being saved in the present from the power of sin by a living Savior. And third, I shall be saved in the future from the presence of sin by a coming Savior. I like that. I would add to that, when we are saved, that's justification. We are now being saved, that is sanctification. And one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. That is what the Bible calls glorification. Now in ancient Rome, when a slave was set free, there was a ceremony to celebrate his emancipation. The, fact, the act was called mancipium, which literally meant possession by the hand. Strangely, our English word emancipate has the opposite meaning. It is from the Latin word emancipatus, and it means take away the hand. And so when someone is emancipated, it means that someone, as in the slave owner, took away his hands from their lives. And that is precisely what happened when we were saved. Make no mistake about it. We were all slaves to sin and Satan at one time. Paul wrote Romans 6.16, which I've had Ray include. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. 
But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. When we trusted Christ as our Savior, it was as though God said to Satan, hands off this one. He or she is no longer under your control. What that means is we are now in new hands and we recognize a new master. Maybe this will help. Like a little child crossing the street holding the parents' hands on each side, we have the Father on one hand, and on the other we have Christ. We are eternally secure because we are secure in the eternal one. Now, first Jesus says that we are secure in his hand. Or maybe this would help. We can imagine ourselves as a coin around which his fingers have folded. Now, this is a secure position for any object, but especially for us considering whose hand it is that holds us. But then, lest we think that this is not enough, Jesus adds that the hand of God is over his hand, so now that we are enclosed in two hands. Today, Jesus, who is our great emancipator, tells us that his sheep know his voice, and no one can snatch us out of his hand. What a transfer. What a transformation. Verse 30, please. I am my father of one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus now made a statement that he knew would startle his enemies and give them even more reason to oppose him. But it was the plain answer that the religious leaders asked for last week. When Jesus tells them, I and the Father are one, this is as clear a statement of his deity as you will find anywhere in Scripture. This was even stronger than his statement that he had come down from heaven or that he had existed before Abraham had lived. Now we have to be careful here as the word one does not suggest that the Father and the Son are identical persons. Rather, it means that they are one in essence. What that means is the Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. He is speaking about unity, not identity. We will deal with the Trinity in our next section. First, he told his opponents he had done nothing to merit stoning. He said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Now, this was a perfectly valid argument. We recognize the force of it when we refuse to judge a person until we can see what they can do. A man may claim to be a good worker, but we do not conclude he is one until we see him at work. As an aside, this should let us know that it is possible to do good works and not only not get rewarded on the earth for them, but to actually be punished for them. You won't hear that on Joel Olstein. But in that, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 34, please. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. 
This now refers back to the Old Testament, wherein judges were called gods with a little g because they held the power of life and death in their hands. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82 where we discover that phrase, you are gods. Now this is used of the judges of Israel. The judges in this psalm are called gods not because they are divine, but because they act as God in their role as judges. They are consecrated to a special task, indeed a holy task, and in God's name they exercise power and authority. Now Jesus says, I too have been sent into this world by God the Father, and that for a specific task. In that task, I exercise authority and power, just as the judges of Israel used to do. And so if the word gods can be used of mere men because of their function, if judges can be called gods, then how much more should I be called God in the full sense, since I have received a unique commissioning and exercise unique and miraculous powers? In other words, Jesus was not denying that in God, that he was God in a unique sense, actually far from it. He was only denying that he had spoken words that were improper. The words are proper enough if even spoken in relation to a man. How much more appropriate are they than of Jesus, who is more than a man? Jesus then says, you call the Old Testament judges gods, and I'm doing infinitely greater things than they ever did. So why can't you see that my words and my works are proof of who I am? Jesus identified the worthless judges in the psalm as a religious leader standing before him and declared himself to be the fulfillment of the psalm where it says, God takes his stand in the own congregation. He judges in the midst of the gods. And so for these apostate rulers of Israel to judge the supreme judge was really nothing short of blasphemy. In reality, it was they who should be stoned. The point is to add, I'm sorry, the point is not to add to the evidence of his deity. It is simply a rebuke on the level of their overreaction to his use of the word God in reference to himself. Doesn't scripture say that you are God's, asked Jesus? Why then are you so upset that I say that I am the Son of God? Well, he throws them a curveball, and they have a tough time hitting it. Verse 37, please. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus now goes even further. He tells the Jews, okay, you want to know who I am? I and the Father are one. He is in me, and I am in him. This, is, of course, is the Christian doctrine known as the Trinity. And even though it is impossible for our minds to fully comprehend it, it is an essential doctrine of our faith. And let me say at the onset, it doesn't bother me one bit that there are some things in Scripture that I don't fully understand. I expect that from a God whose thoughts are far above mine. It reminds me of one time when Paul Crockett was trying to explain to me the time-space continuum. He even drew pictures on a napkin. At the end of it, I told him I felt like he was Einstein talking to a clam. 
So my goal for you is not that you would understand the Trinity. You and I can't fully understand the Trinity. After this sermon, I don't want the Trinity to be any less amazing and mysterious than it already is and always will be. I don't want God to be any less mysterious because a God I can totally understand is by definition not very much of a God. If God can fit inside my tiny head, then he's not a God worth worshiping. But here's the wonderful thing. You don't need to fully understand the Trinity to enter into the life of the Trinity. For instance, they tell me that deep within the core of the sun, the temperature is 27 million degrees. The pressure is 340 billion times what it is on Earth. And in the sun's core, that insanely hot temperature and unthinkable pressure combines to create nuclear reactions. In each reaction, four protons fuse together to create one alpha particle, which is 0.7% less massive than the four protons. The difference in mass is expelled as energy through a process called convection. The energy from the core of the sun finally reaches the surface, or it is expelled as heat and light. Now, wasn't that all very interesting? But you know what? I don't need to know all of that in order to get a tan or, or, or in order to enjoy a beautiful summer day. However, with that said, the Trinity is not optional. It's not a doctrine you can just disregard. Because if you're going to know God better, if you're going to go deeper in your relationship with God, you need to understand the Trinity as much as we possibly can. Now, Christians do not just start talking about the Trinity because they like the number three. They did so to make sense out of the way God had come to them as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When people met Jesus, he said things like, I and the Father are one. And when people believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and they found this indwelling power of God inside themselves. A Holy Spirit that comforted them, taught them, convicted them when they fell into sin. So then these people said, how do we explain the fact that there is only one God, yet Jesus and the Holy Spirit are also God? Suppose I locked you in a room and gave you nothing but a Bible and some food. After a while, you would read some verses that said, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you would read verses that said, How is it that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So I open the door and let you out and ask you, well, what did you learn about God? You might say, well, I must have come up with the wrong answer because the Bible is really clear that there's only one God, but it also teaches that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. It's like there's one God made up of three gods called the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. One theologian put it like this. While it is true that no passage of Scripture spells out the doctrine of the Trinity, it is also true that the whole of Scripture's witness to who God is and who Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are makes no sense at all without the model of the Trinity, and that all the alternative concepts end up doing violence to some essential aspect of revelation, Christian experience, and possibly even reason itself. So, what exactly is the Trinity? The ancient Greek word for this mutual indwelling of the Trinity is perichoresis, which is related to our word choreography. 
To me, that means the Trinity exists as a kind of eternal dance of joyful love among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is the Christian name for God. Now, I can teach you the doctrine of the Trinity with four words. If you understand these four words, you'll know the core of the doctrine of the Trinity. The first word is one, as in there is only one God. Now, the Bible was written in a world in which every country and even every household had its God or even gods. So there were plenty of gods to choose from. But the writers of the Bible say consistently from beginning to end that there is only one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So to believe in the Trinity, first, you have to believe that there is only one God. The second word you need is three. This one God is not a lonely king. This God in his very nature always has been and always will be three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see this in the Bible in many places. Let's take Matthew 28 as an example where we read. And Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everywhere to obey the things I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always even to the end of the age. Notice when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, baptize them in the name of God, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another great text is seen at the baptism of Jesus where we read, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So in this we see Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father all represented at one time as distinct. Now the third word you need to describe the Trinity is community. God is a community in unity. God is a community in that God exists as three persons and yet those persons are distinct. What I mean is, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. The fourth and final word is this word, community, and it always lives in unity. That means they share the same nature. Each one is God, each one is majestic and glorious, yet there is no end fighting. They live together forever in perfect love. No one has an ego problem. No one's going to get mad and walk out of the relationship. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in unity as one God forever. So those are your three or your four words. One, three, community, and unity. So the Trinity is not a small, minor issue. The Trinity shapes your daily life. How so? Well, let's say that I'm struggling with temptation. I've given in. I'm mad at myself, and I'm feeling ashamed. I still need a God who gives and upholds his moral law. I will not be helped by a God who says, don't worry about it. Go ahead and plunge into sin and ruin your life. But I also need a God who understands how hard it is down here on earth, who has been tempted as I have been, 
overcome it, and out of that understanding still forgives me. And I also need a God who will not give up on me, who will live inside me and give me the power to change. Well, what I need and what I've just described is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible describes this reality perfectly in Romans 8 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Christianity's answer to my struggles with temptation is to give me the very presence and power of God inside me to help me. In that short passage I just read, that presence and power are named as the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. Paul is saying, as you are being made more holy little by little every day, it's the Father, Son, and the Spirit working together in your life. Well, that's about the best I can do. And I realize that still doesn't explain the mystery of the Trinity. Look at verse 39 with me. I'll just offer up a couple quick comments, and then you can go to Cracker Barrel. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan, the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Jesus said the greatest prophet born in the history of the world was a man who did no miracles. Zero. Zip. None. Now at that point I realized that if I were never to see a miracle through my life, if I were never able to see this power of the Spirit in a tangible way, it would be fine with me as long as it could be said of me what was said of John, that all things I spoke about Jesus were true. What's the priority in ministry? It's doing exactly what John did, which is talking about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, and exalting Jesus. No wonder John was called the greatest prophet of all time. As we finish up this morning, Lord Kenneth Clark, internationally known for his television series Civilization, lived and died without faith in Christ. He admitted, though, in his autobiography that while visiting a beautiful church, he had what he believed to be an overwhelming religious experience. He wrote, My whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I'd ever known before. But the flood of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he was going to have to change. And his family might think he had lost his mind. And maybe that intense joy would just prove to be an illusion. So he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. I don't know if there's any sadder sentence than that last one. Sadly, Mr. Clark rejected the only one who could have saved him. Now, in much the same way, Jesus' public ministry closed with one last rejection by the very leaders who should have held him as the Messiah. Their rejection foreshadowed his final rejection a few months later when the people under their influence would cry out, away with him, away with him, 
crucify him. Even today, <clears throat> there are many who, like the hostile Jewish nation, allow their preconceived ideas about religion and their love for sin to blind them to the saving truth about Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, those who are drawn to him in repentance and faith will come to know the truth of who he is. To them will be given the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you haven't done that this morning, don't make the same mistake as Lord Kenneth Clark. See me after service so we can talk. And Father, I am glad that you are a God so far above me that there are things about you I can't understand. That gives me great peace to know that you hold this universe in the palm of your hand. Nothing happens without your decree. And yet you look down upon, you stoop down, it says, to look upon the earth at the children of men. And yet you, for some reason, love us. I pray, Father, that you would just make yourself real in whatever capacity you as the Trinity need to be made known to everyone within the sound of my voice and who will hear this on the Internet. We ask in your name. Amen.